0: Welcome to the Mac PFD Spark Podcast. This podcast is meant to inspire you to take the next step in your development journey as a faculty member. We're really excited to bring you all sorts of content, from inspiring you to teach or supervise differently, to leading and managing your team, to thinking about new creative ways or humanistic ways to actually do your work, and finally, to up your game in your scholarly practice. Are you excited yet? I certainly am. So sit back, listen, and enjoy this latest episode of the MacPFD
1: Spark Podcast. Hello and welcome to the 28th episode of MacPFD Spark. Today we will be listening to two discussions
2: about improvement. First, we will have the opportunity to listen to Dr. Xien Xiao discuss organizing care through his podcast, Weight Room Revolution. Next, we will be hearing a segment from the Women's Chat series about Getting to We, a
1: discussion focused on enabling women to collaborate and champion each other in the healthcare field. Please enjoy the episode.
0: Hello, everyone. I'm here with Dr. Sien Xiao from the Department of Oncology. He is a PhD researcher and someone that I've known since high school. Say hello to everyone, Sien.
2: Hi, Spark listeners. So happy to be on the podcast today.
0: All right, so Sienna and I know each other because we went to this thing called Shad Valley once upon a time many years ago.
2: Yeah, it's still around, and I bet you there are people listening who might know what that is. So we've just dated ourselves, but yeah, that's how we. Well, I mean, it
0: still exists, so there might be people who are sending their kids to it. Well, in the time beyond the pandemic, or have. Yeah, it's
2: funny how small the world is, and here we are back together again. It's amazing.
0: Yeah, Shad Valley is a nonprofit organization that runs basically a summer camp for kids to get them interested in science and beyond. And both of us, I guess, are probably alumni that they're exactly hoping for. <laughs> so-
2: yeah. And in some funny way, we both did go into math and science and engineering. So uh, maybe it worked. <laughs> yeah, exactly.
1: There you go.
0: And so one of the core tenets of that program really is to spark people's imagination and creativity around how they can see their world changing if they got involved in STEM. And I'm going to add STEM with a double M with medicine being possibly one of those things because that's who I am. But I do think that it's really interesting to see how our worlds have evolved and changed just even in this wake of the pandemic we are certainly in a new world where we're able to turn out vaccines in record breaking time we are changing the face of how we are doing things and yet we are still using fax machines in our hospitals and in this ever changing world one of the things that i have noticed is that increasingly we are all using social media we are all using things like podcasts blog posts and you know like misinformation and fake news is certainly real and so I think that there's been a big push to get people out there with the expertise, with, you know, PhDs like yourself or MDs like myself to get out there and really talk about the reality of what it is that we do in the sciences. And to me, as a fellow researcher, I see the call to arms for that. In fact, I've been probably at the front of the revolution raving a web banner saying, all right, scientists, all right, doctors, all right, nurses, get out there, right? And I know that you've been getting in the game. So can you tell me the story about how you went from scientist to podcaster?
2: It's a great question. I mean, I got into science, you know, the field of work that I do is about palliative care, which is care for people with serious illness. Many of them will die from that illness. And so, you know, when I got started, it was really about end of life care and hospice care. And I knew that even though it is a reality, it's a common human experience. It's not something that many people prepare for. So I knew that if I wanted to get in the game, I needed to have credentials. I didn't have, you know, the same brain power as you do to be going to medical school. But I I really had lots of social science questions about how do we organize care? And so I got my PhD from Johns Hopkins. I studied how we could make the Ontario healthcare system better, particularly home and community care and the critical role of primary care connected to hospitals for the care. And I knew that evidence mattered. You know, we can't make decisions and policies based on guesses. They affect millions of lives. You want good decisions and data and facts. And I would say the thing that I feel that has been so important is yes, the research methods, but the curiosity. I think that's been the thing that I asking questions. So in this world of misinformation, I kind of get where these questions are coming from, but then you need to keep following up with good questions to find the right answers and not sort of just believe everything that's coming into your social media feed. But what I learned when I came and arrived in Canada, which is a you know, a great, I'm Canadian, a great country with a great healthcare system is even though, you know, I'm fighting to get grants and publications and great journals and getting your message out, there was still a disconnect between what we know is the right thing to do and what was happening on the front ground. And maybe some of that is KT science, implementation science, but I think it was something more. I realized that we were really trying to change behavior and practice and not just influence knowledge. And so, you know, if you think of that, there's an analogy of policymaking where it's like sausage making and evidence is just one piece of it, but values, economics, patient and family experience, all of that fit in there somewhere. And so understanding those parts became really important to me wanting to make a change. I got into research not to necessarily get publications, but because I wanted to make a difference in people's lives. And I, you know, and I think many of the listeners are in their research fields for the same reason. And so I realized I needed an extra skill. And that skill came in the form of innovation science. So I teach a course about innovation science. And I think I learned from human-centered design innovators and, and IDO methodologies. And there's lots of them. But it was really just this idea of yeah, I think it's just another tool in the research tool belt, which is you need to ask your users what's the problem, you know, prototype, use ideation, different kinds of things to just really tackle big problems. Complex problems are not always able to be narrowly defined and in a study design that can be answered with a randomized trial. I think there's obviously a role for that. You know, we know with vaccines, like randomized trials are really important, but for other problems, sometimes solutions come from talking to people and qualitative work and just design innovation. So I will say that that was the other big skill that I've sort of developed in the last five years. And the podcast part came from me realizing that even when you have that, you have to get your message out. And again, my field is palliative care. There is so much stigma and misunderstanding about what that is. And there's this whole role for educating clinicians. For sure, we've been spending decades, not just me, but many people of trying to introduce palliative care in a way that other clinicians would understand and be able to implement. But the light bulb for me came when I realized patients and families also had a role in changing their storyline but didn't know how to get involved because of so many of these barriers that are sort of hidden, frankly. And so podcasting was a way to get a message out in a way that we could use plain language to people. So it has been a really fun journey. We just sort of started in the past few months. Our podcast is called The Waiting Room Revolution. The name comes from us wanting to have the revolution from the waiting room. Patients and families should be part of this conversation of how we make a better healthcare system and we ignore them at our peril.
0: That's very fascinating. I love the idea of bringing end users into research. I think that there's a big movement in research around experience-based co-design, that being kind of the research version of what other people might call design thinking. I think that there's a lot of overlap with what people talk about in implementation science or called improvement. I think that there's definitely a spectrum here of tools, which is at the core of it. We're all just trying to improve clinical care. We're all just trying to improve health. And I think that it's really fascinating to think through, you know, even just the example of what you said about the COVID vaccine. Yes. When testing vaccines versus placebo to see if it causes, you know, actual benefit and increased antibodies and and decreases numbers of hospitalizations, that was really important to do as a randomized control trial. But we're not one trick pony type people. And we also need different things when it comes to vaccine delivery. When it comes to convincing communities, like some of our Emerge docs have gotten involved with some of the South Asian task force in Peel region to get people over the hump of actually coming to vaccines. That probably isn't the same skill set, right? And RCT is not going to convince people, grandparents to influence their entire family to be able to go and get everyone to get vaccinated. And so we do need to bring and draw from the social sciences to better understand how we can improve health, because it's going to take all sorts of different sciences. And for us to just hinge on RCTs, I think is insufficient, which is why I think that your story is so fascinating.
2: Yeah, it's so interesting. Like so much of the stuff that's really changing behavior is the psychology. It's the neuroscience of how we learn, but also the psychology of how we think and make decisions. You know, there's so much talk about cognitive behavioral therapy and and just, you know, finding our triggers for mental health, all of these things are so important. And I think it's just, they're all sciences. They're all connecting these in different ways. And, you know, really the idea that any individual is not just a single thing. We are a combination of our values and our experiences and our aspirations. So evident, just like policymaking, that sausage making analogy, when we make decisions every day about whether to get a vaccine or not, or, you know, what things to eat for dinner, there are lots of factors going into that. And it isn't just, you know, the evidence. You know, I'm sure we've all heard the there's no randomized trial of the effectiveness of parachutes. Right. So similarly, so many decisions that are being made are not only based on evidence. And I think the podcast method is a beautiful way to get people into a conversation that meets them where they're at and sort of in a different format. Because, you know, to be honest, not many people are reading the academic journals. Everyday people are reading academic journals like we are or there's a paywall and things like that. So who wins out? The things that are free, the Twitters, the social, the Instagrams that are winning out because they're getting their message to their audience fast in a way that's digestible, that doesn't well require sophisticated understanding of methods. And so I think the big shift for all of us who are trying to get a message out is the recognition that our usual sources of information, you know, like we used to be in a world where patients would go to their doctors, the doctors would know everything, they would listen, yes, doctor, they would listen to everything the doctor said. But we know more and more that people are getting information from their peers, from their social networks, from social media, and therefore they're having more and more influence on how they behave. And so if we don't play that game, I think we miss an opportunity to activate them and bring them alongside because we need allies to share a message. I think that's the big key.
0: Agreed. And I think we need to take a look at the neuroscience behind things like marketing, steal from the playbooks of other industries that are much better how many of you remember you know the slogan for Nike without me having to say it right it's easy peasy because they've they've hinged on the things that work and they made it stick and I think we need to make our work sticky as well. And I think that it's why we have a whole team in the math PFT environment working on building social media capacities and, and working with people to develop those skill sets. And hopefully we'll have some modules soon to launch for you to do it in your own way in your own time, because we know it's tough. But hopefully this podcast is, is part of that so that we can help people be convinced that this is a skill set worth knowing. But if you want to get in the Instagram game, guess what? We have a recorded workshop run by andrew Ibrahim, who's the originator behind visual abstracts himself from university of michigan he also has a design background he is a surgeon and he has been helping journals get into the game of visual abstracts so that they can get the people to click and read their articles but spread the word about these articles as well so I definitely think there's a, a new game to be learned and that's going to be something that we need to encourage everyone to up their game. And so hopefully we'll be supporting the scholarly practice of expanding this in the coming months. All right. So CN do you have any final thoughts for what you want to get across to our listeners about if they're a faculty member looking to reach their patients better, what would be like maybe one take-home point you want to give them? Or you can go with two if you want.
2: <laughs> what I can share with you, it has been the most fun journey making this podcast, The Waiting Revolution, because it allowed us to think of a different audience. Our target audience wasn't just clinicians changing clinician behavior, which we still do with other training. But when we thought of our patients and families as a potential target of information, it opened the light bulb for me and my my co-host, Dr. Samantha Winemaker, and changed our whole perspective because so much of what we're talking about and teaching. Clinicians on the language and they had to have these gentle conversations are things that patients and families could initiate. So I think the take home to me has been that it allowed us when we thought of them as an audience, suddenly, first of all, our target audience of allies is suddenly millions and millions of people. And suddenly it seemed doable. You know, there are times when it was doom and gloom of like, how are we going to change the needle? It is not moving fast enough. And we didn't have enough people sharing the message. And so this podcast has been one medium to reach that audience. And the response has been amazing. Like, you know, when you sort of feel alone of like, am I the only one who cares about this? The podcast has really reached out to audience who are like, no, I'm talking about the same thing. And healthcare providers too. So it has been sort of like career saving. There are times where you're sort of like, wow, am I really, should I be doing this? And this has been one way to tap into a new audience that just feels affirming and validating, which we get sometimes from our journal articles, but I have way more rejections than I have successes. And so maybe this is just allowing us to have a conversation with more people. And it was just, it was just a beautiful experience. And I encourage others to think of who the other audiences are that could be allies so that you feel like you're part of a group that is advocating and, care and is passionate about the topic as you are.
0: All right. Well, thank you so much for your time. And we'll check you again later when you're on the podcast as a team member for Mac PFD.
2: Oh, I can't wait. It'll be fun.
0: Wow, that was a really awesome first segment of the Mac PFD Spark podcast. And now on to our second segment. Sarah and I are here to welcome you to this workshop. And so the Women's Chat series came out of an asynchronous conversation I had with Sarah, which turned to a burst conversation and then an inclusion of others, where we were trying to think about how we could create better connectivity for everyone. And so we came up with this idea called the Conversations in Healthcare, Academia and Teaching as a format and a methodology that we chose women's issues as the first series, but that we would then expand into other topics later on. And so this is a format that you might see other ones like I assume we're going to probably do something like a leader's chat or an educator's chat at some point, and there'll be other chats that come up, but the idea would be that thematically they are supposed to work together as a suite. So basically what it is, is that the inspiration for this one and this chat series is the idea that there's a persistent gender gap in academia and probably in healthcare leadership as well in many ways, even though women are increasingly in academia and healthcare as a great constituency within it we provide a lot of the care, leadership roles tend to still be quite male dominated in, you know, a hospital that has thousands of nurses who are all female, for instance, the CEOs of many hospital systems are still men, right? So this is something that we have to tackle with and think about it in that way. We do encourage you to also think about the intersectionality of whether you're a physician or physiotherapist, administrator, we acknowledge that there's many ways that you can see this, right? And our goal is to, in this chat series, help bring together women and identify individuals and allies to discuss challenges and learn from each other and build capacity to overcome barriers towards leadership in this particular series. We're going to kick it off now with getting to our topic of discussion today, which is around getting to we, collaborating and championing each other. Sarah and I will do a little bit of tag teaming. I'll do some of the chief talking and then she's going to add on as well. So the problem is that a lot of the times, and for those of who are on other disciplines, you may see this happening in your discipline as well. But in general workplaces, women disproportionately carry the burden of a lot of the collaboration. And this happens because women care for the collective, care about everyone on the team. And then this often manifests in stepping in when there's like uncertainty or someone isn't willing to do something. No one's like cleaned the sink in the common room for a while. Like it tends to be women that step up to do those things. It is also something where people feel guilty about putting themselves first and women often are in that group. And there's study after city that women will voice that. I'm sure all of us here probably have done it where you feel like you need to give more time to others than it is to do your own, protect your own time so that you can have your relaxation time, your me time, or even just deep work time where you have to struggle through a paper. I myself have found myself sometimes if I'm accountable to someone else. I'm more likely to finish that paper than I am the ones that I have to author by myself. And so, this is just the reality of the way that we're probably socialized, and it's just a little bit And women often are desired as collaborators, though. So, if you look at big companies and they do that, done analytics, women are often seen as someone that knows the lay of the land, understands, and maybe has information that other people don't. And they're often then also brought into teams, brought into collaborations and networks. And then maybe not always giving the credit that they're due because that's really important. And so I do think that this is something that I'd like to problematize for us. There is a Harvard business review article that is from 2018 that I kind of shamelessly kind of am citing in this because I think that she said it better <laughs> than I could ever do. And so I will point you towards that talk at the end of my talk to highlight the importance of this article and some of the solutions in that article. Now, another part of the problem is that due to your highly sought after place in part of that team, we often do prioritize others, mentorship, team meetings, sponsoring others, helping others out, and again, kind of neglect where we are. We also spend less time doing our own work and our own deep thinking that can advance our you know, scholarship, our teaching, our leadership potential. We also then endure something called collaborative overload, where you have so many collaborations, you're not really sure where to go next. And so I, I hope that that term is something that even though it might be new to you, it might just be putting a label to a phenomenon that you have found yourself experiencing. And so it's something to, to think about and to understand that. And so I thought I'd tell a story and then maybe see if Sarah would be willing and interested to share a similar story. But my story is that I often do find myself as part of teams and have gravitated towards leading teams. But one of the things that I did find in my early career is that I would often prioritize a lot of work that that I did with others more often than myself. And so what would happen would be that, you know, I'm trying to carve out a niche as an education scientist and I'm trying to put together. A lot of the you know like just getting papers out and grants written and I'd say yes to a lot of things to collaborate but maybe my first author publications would start to suffer because you know what I have a med student that I'm trying to foster and make sure they get their publication done and you know write revision where someone like one of my good friends that's on the call today Antonio, would like hey look over my paper or I'd get a request from someone to review an article or edit something and I would always say yes to those things because I wanted to be helpful so because I wanted to to collaborate with others and to do all this hard work. And I wanted to be known for being someone who's collaborative and affiliative and and helpful. But that meant that sometimes I was putting aside my thesis, that I wasn't completing my scientific work, that I wasn't making the move on a next big grant. At some point, I read this article (laughs) and, and, and started changing my practice. And so it was a real struggle for me personally to start thinking about how I could double dip into multiple wins. So just because I'm supervising a junior person doesn't mean that I can't also then be a part of their team and help them write. I invested more heavily in taking that need to do a more developmental transformational leadership point of view to train up and really heavily invest in collaborators who I have actually spent time to engage with and actually bring them back so that they know the core fundamental ways that you can collaborate well with each other so that I don't mind working with them in the future and that they know how to carry their weight and be transparent about what they do. And so a big part of my story is that I try to take some of the practices that we'll talk about at the end of this talk and actually build them into the systems of trust and networking and collaboration that I currently do. So there's a lot of transparency. There's a lot of who's going to do what. There's clear accountability to the sight lines. And that's the kind of collaborative work that I do is like to create the system of collaboration that I do now. Sarah, do you have any kind of thoughts or reactions to, to my story?
1: <laughs> I just have general thoughts to share. I think that there's a, a difference between being nice and being kind. And very often as women, we we sort of trip all over ourselves trying to, to do good for, for others and don't really set boundaries for what our expectations are for ourselves. And so in, in considering that, there has been a lot of work that... I've done personally on trying to better establish boundaries, being able to better articulate the value that I bring to a team or to an environment. And so by understanding that, I'm able to say yes and no to different types of opportunities, which in the long run should lead to less being tapped into as a resource to fulfill a lot of unofficial tasks and uh, should probably be a more healthy way of, of using time and using my own personal mental energy and resources. Very often, just to kind of further supplement to what you've been talking about, Teresa, very often I've seen women do work that they're not recognized for, uh, step up, uh, keep going, do a lot of behind the scenes stuff that isn't recognized by leadership. And so I would just further emphasize that know your value, know what you want to do, where you want to get to and and don't always just agree to help out or support something because someone else doesn't have time to do it. Uh, very often what I find certain colleagues do is they don't have time for the activities that they know are not going to be as front and center, as re- well rewarded as something else. And so as women, I think we do need to do a better job and just being aware of what is more front and center, what is less front and center, and be able to see through saying no strategically and saying yes strategically. I want you to think of your last team interaction and
0: think about and share with the group maybe what role you played on that team. And then the other part of it, too, would be to let's let's talk a little bit about the guilt factor and talk about was there ever in that team something that you felt guilty about doing or that you you felt guilty about not doing because you were putting the team's needs above your own. And then I think that you could also talk about the idea of collaborative overload. Have you ever felt that? What are strategies that you did to to help you work through that? Okay, so the idea right now would be that I did want to highlight that there are some solutions that when you are in collaboration overload, or in a maybe a culture where collaboration is not yet a fabric of this design and the structures that you're in, is that we can actually create that ability to form a culture around that. And this is something that I try to do as I advanced in my career and I've been in more leadership roles around research and in other leadership roles, I've tried to actually make this culture around the mutual accountability. And these are things that you can do as you create that space around you for collaboration is, and I think that those of you who do scientific work, this will probably resonate with a lot of the advice you get when you're being coached to how to be a good author or co-author. I think part of it is the idea of mutuality and creating that culture around the fact that we're all in this together and having that, well, Rob, boom, blah, but that attitudinal conversation with your team, right? That we're getting into this and we're going to be a good team member to each other. And here are our touchstones. And this is what it means to work together. Well, having that forming conversation when you're putting together a new team is fairly important and trying to figure out who's going to be accountable for what and how and why and when. Clear contracting is also important so the, some of this might be with regards to the idea of how to make very precise the commitments like who's going to do what session, how long it's going to take what we're expecting you to do in between sessions the more clear you can be, the better you can be as, as a leader. And then the last part would be the idea of transparency so making sure that all parties know what everyone else is doing so that it's very obvious that Tichan should not take on another student right now she's got 17. And that maybe someone who isn't actually currently supervising anyone might wanna step up. And sometimes it's just making sure that those statistics are available and transparent. It's not always easily accessible, which is why I think in all of our different zones, especially when you have multiple roles, Because Tisha might not be doing anything in the master's program right now because she is the assistant dean of faculty development. (laughs) and Actually, that might be a huge portfolio. And so acknowledge that and understand that I am one person, but I hold multiple roles has been something that I have to advocate and make sure people are very clear with me. And I'm transparent with them about how I can't continue to work at the same pace for them when I have something else I have to attend to, right? And so I think that's also your own ability to speak up and articulate all your all, all your participation is important. Just to go through it again, mutuality is where you actually form that team and you actually do that hard work it takes to talk about where your shared goals are, where you're headed. I just came from a meeting where Sarah held, held my feet to the fire a little bit around articulating that. What is the goal? Where are we going? What is the journey? And I think that's really important for our team. The next one would be clear contracting. And this is where we want to make sure that we're not ambiguous about the expectations, like, you know, it's kind of like, I think more, many of you may have grown up with the household where you had more than one kid. And so, you know, chores, you know, like having actual handout that actually says who's on deck for which chore (laughs) is actually really important because otherwise I kept on having to clean the bathroom and my brother never did. And so having some kind of accountability framework, be able to account for that would be important. The more ambiguous you are, the more likely that there would be a chance for there to be some void that all of us have feel is compulsion to fill. And I think that's important, making sure that the requests are precise and guided across all team members, but especially when you're leading or that you're collaborating so that you're bounded by expectations, so that you don't exceed or underperform, but also mostly sometimes making just very clear what that request is so that everyone achieves what they're supposed to do and what the next steps are. The last part is the idea of seeking a commitment response. So I think a lot of you may have been running meetings digitally where, you know, like, will anyone take this on? And then you have to be willing to count till 15 for someone to unmute or type something that does take an an extra piece of time. The other part of it, too, would be if you have a committee that comes together quite regularly, it might be, okay. so next on deck is going to be Joey and Joey, you're next on this list. So unless anyone else wants to volunteer as tribute, Joey is going to be taking on this task. Is everyone okay with that? And so having a a list of who's up next, kind of like a speaker's list or to-do list, I think it's important to kind of have systems that can augment that committed response, right? So if none, don't leave it to chance because chances are if it's that void, that uncertainty and it's a fact of the matter is that we'll be headed towards a collaborative approach to it that it often will be women that actually end up filling that void. I think transparency is the last thing, making sure that, you know, you're above board about the expectations, making sure that you're very savvy about asking, okay, so what exactly am I committing to here? What exactly do you need from me? an email is sufficient. You don't have to document like in a formal contract or anything like that. But I think an email, even just after you have a conversation, is that actually making sure that you follow up with just to be clear, this is what I thought we had discussed. And this is what I've agreed to a simple email after that meeting is is actually really good to just keep a data trail and, and making sure that you have that so that you can go back to it as well, because then you can snooze that email for a bit and have it pop up a couple of weeks later. So you can get your to do list done before the next meeting. I think that you have to make sure that you then follow through to your tasks. And hopefully that's the case, especially in the setting of collaboration overload. Sometimes you can't keep track of all the tasks. So figuring out a good way to keep yourself accountable is important. And then the last thing would be to create a healthy feedback culture so that if someone isn't stepping up, isn't doing as much, that you have that feedback culture so that you can explore why they might not be stepping up as much, why they might not be doing as much as they could and seeing how you could support that, right? Because sometimes when you ask, their life is falling apart outside of work. And so a big part of it is that that's that's what the problem is. And so that's basically what I have. So that's the summary. And during the pandemic, I think we have to think about how we're going to engage our teams. We're doing things in new ways now. This is a chance for us to rethink all the collaboration techniques writ large and not just because we are transitioning to digital. That's new for someone else. And this is the paper. So if you want to scan the QR code, you can hold up your phone and I'll leave that there. And that's basically it. But definitely, this is the HBR article that I have more or less paraphrased from. And it's a wonderful article. That's a touchstone that really changed my life. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Mac PFD Spark Podcast. Just so you know, this podcast has been brought to you by the McMaster Faculty of Health Sciences and specifically the Office of Continuing Professional Development and the Program for Faculty Development. If you're interested in finding out more about what we can offer for faculty development, check out our website at www.macpfd.ca. That's www.macpfd.ca. Many of our events are actually web events that are free. Finally, I'd like to thank our sound engineer, Mr. Nick Hoskin, who has been an amazing asset to our team. Thanks so much, Nick, for all that you do. And also thank you to Scott Holmes for supplying us the music that you've been listening to. All right, so until next time, this is Mac PFD Spark signing off.